From the Center for Strategic and International Studies, this is Citizens in Training, a podcast about the unlikely story of the United Arab Emirates military conscription program. I'm John Alterman, a senior vice president here at CSIS, the Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security NGO Strategy and director of the Middle East Program. And I'm Margot Balboni, a research associate in the Middle East Program. Last week on the podcast, we heard from Greg Gauze, a professor at Texas A&M University and an expert on the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf. We discussed what the UAE's conscription program reveals about its challenges at home and in the region, and what it means to apply a military program to try and engineer a new type of citizen. In this week's episode, we'll hear from another old friend of mine, Dr. Kristen Smith-Dewan, who describes the rise of a new nationalism in the Gulf and how this set the stage for the UAE conscription program. Kristen is a senior resident scholar with the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington and an adjunct professor at the American University School of International Service. Because she has a remarkable network of people she's been in touch with from years of working in the Gulf, Kristen has a unique view among scholars in Washington of what's really happening in Gulf societies. She's a must-have on the podcast for us. Kristen places national service in the context of efforts in the UAE to promote a stronger national identity in a country that is not even half a century old. She also breaks down a key theme of what she calls the new nationalism in the UAE and in the Gulf more broadly, which is to galvanize citizens to contribute much more actively to the state. Kristen also raises important questions about the gender dynamics of this new nationalism. What would a more militaristic direction mean for men and women's roles in national development? As we note in our report, the UAE's conscription program is open to women on a voluntary basis, but it's had quite limited success attracting and retaining female recruits. Kristen's analysis shows us that we need to keep an eye on how more specific identities, gender, socioeconomic class, or local identities, will continue to inform how people think about and experience these efforts to foster nationalism. We begin by asking Kristen to define this idea of a new nationalism in the Gulf and how it's driven leaders' efforts to shift citizens' relationship to the state. When we think about how the Gulf states are trying to deal with this future that they face when they have less oil resources um, and need to diversify their economies, they need to have more capable citizens. At the same time, they're dealing with a lot of challenges of transnational forces that have a lot of appeal to their citizens kind of from underneath them. So they have to deal with security challenges coming from Islamic movements, even foreign states, concerns about Shia movements being attracted to Iran, uh, even the Arab Spring movements, kind of youth movements, and how that spread across the region. So I think they're looking for ways both to remake their citizens and to bind them much more strongly to the state. Um, And this looks really different than what we had before. I mean, if you think about petro-welfare states, that was mostly done kind of through the contributions that they made to their citizens. And right now they very much need to have their citizens contributing much more to the state. And that's going to require a different kind of individual and a different kind of loyalty. And then the problem you're describing is a problem really that all the Gulf Cooperation Council states have. As you've pointed out, there, there are three that have begun conscription programs. United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Kuwait, I think has approved one, but not yet started it. Are they approaching it in similar ways, different ways, as far as you can tell? And and what about the ones who haven't gone to the conscription route? Do you think they're likely to? Yeah, well, I think we can see kind of the two leaders in the Gulf being the smaller 
um, more innovative countries of the UAE and Qatar that kind of realized they had these problems earlier, had uh, some younger generation leadership more willing to take changes, and smaller populations that I think it was sort of easier to manage. So I think they've really taken the lead in this. Um, definitely some of the other states are, are looking to do some of the same. I mean, Kuwait already has different sorts of relations to their citizen that's built through the parliament. So they have a different way of kind of tying people to the state um, in a different form of participation. Um, I know that uh, Saudi working, Arabia has spoken in about that. Um, the parliament? I mean, sort of binding the citizens through the electoral process. I mean, I find a kind of remarkable loyalty in Kuwait to the Constitution, uh, which gives them a very different model of kind of starting to base, uh, you know, their loyalty both on a kind of rule of law linked to the Constitution while still being very loyal to the ruling family and those institutions. Um, but they still do have a lot of strong participation within the country and a lot of transnational movements. Uh, Islamic movements are very strong there, whether from the Sunni side or the Shia side. Um, and I think that's some of the issues that are going to be a challenge to Saudi Arabia and to Bahrain if they were to look to do the same. Um, you know, Bahrain famously doesn't have hardly any participation, I believe, of their Shia citizens and their uh, police forces and armed forces. Um, and they make up a sizable part of the population, probably a majority. Um, and, you know, Saudi Arabia might have similar issues. So that whole question Although of how it's a minority in Saudi Arabia, but Absolutely. a sizable one. Right. So those kind of questions come into play when you look at doing conscription. But as they're looking to build kind of more national identity, it's something that I think at least Saudi Arabia might start to look to. Part of building a national identity means coming up with ways to unify a country that may have a diverse population. The UE is comprised of seven different emirates, and each has its own government, economic circumstances, and sociocultural identities. I want to ask Kristen how she thought this diversity would affect the conscription program's goal of creating a unified United Arab Emirate identity. One of the things about going into the army is everybody gets the head shaved, everybody gets up at four in the morning. How does that affect a place where who your father was, what tribe you're in matters? I mean, how, how, how do you think they're balancing those issues? I suspect it's very incomplete. Uh, I imagine the people who go into that with their advantages come out with their advantages. I mean, just having, you know, that one year of national service is not going to change that. Um, I guess there's a hope, though, that they start to think uh, within a more national frame, so in a way that really binds people together. Um, and that's particularly important for a country like the UAE, which is, of course, made up of you know, seven different emirates, um, as they're trying to kind of centralize and bring all those identities under kind of one structure and one force. This intention is apparent in the rhetoric around the UAE's conscription and some of the training materials we saw throughout our research. What comes through is a very strong drive to use conscription to make young people think of themselves as Emirati before anything else. Theoretical courses that conscripts must complete enforce loyalty to the UAE above ties to any subnational communities like individual emirate, tribe, or ideological groups, especially those the UAE deems threatening. Belonging to any organization outlawed by the UAE government, like the Muslim Brotherhood, is grounds for being barred from the program. I asked Kristen about when the idea of tying national identity to security really took off. Was that after 9-11? Was that after... Uh, the Arab Spring, was it 
sort of taking stock of the Arab Spring. Where, where, where did this come from, the more holistic approach to national security? Yeah, I think, I mean, I saw kind of trends not towards the national security, but towards these identity, questions of identity, trying to embrace more of a national identity starting well before the Arab Spring. I mean, I know in Saudi Arabia, you could see this under King Abdullah, um, the desire to kind of shift a bit from the sole kind of central focus of identity on um, both the ruling family and the partnership with uh, kind of Unitarian Islam or Wahhabism, um, trying to think of a different way to center that authority. So you could start to see that, um, and you can see it. A lot of scholars have looked at things like the starts of archives, now kind of tourism that makes people be proud of different, you know, kind of places, um, national museums. All of these things did start earlier in a number of these states. Um, I think the UAE has been kind of the one state that has gone further in that and linking it very much to this national security. And it's very much in line with both their concern for unifying inside of the state across the Emirates and also their strong desire to project outward. Um, and we've seen that with the UAE playing a much more um, significant role in, in, in different you know, conflicts across the region. In many ways, the Arab Spring was a product of the democratization of information. Given how much more of it young people have access to today, we asked Kristen how this more networked environment might interact with the goals of national institutions, where they tend to reinforce top-down relationships. I think there is a tension there. Um, and one of the reasons I was really drawn to look at this new nationalism was to think about how these states were going to deal with a lot of their younger citizens who, as you said, were raised in social media and new media, had a lot of new ideas, um, were used to these very horizontal communication and participation, um, and as well had a real um, desire, I think, to contribute much more to their countries in a more concrete way. Um, I saw a lot of young people undertaking independent projects. Volunteerism has been on the rise um, across the Gulf states, which is not something that we had as much of in these kind of petro-welfare states. Um, and so I think part of the characteristic of this new nationalism is to create that space so that young people can contribute, but they're doing it in a way that's very much under the authority of the state. So it does have those kinds of contradictions in it, in that it's allowing a kind of arena for participation, but still very much under the authority of the ruling families. And so in that sense, I think this kind of national conscription kind of fits in well with that sort of model. Well, and of course, many of the people serving are from Ras al Khaimah, mm -hmm. not one of the wealthiest emirates, but one of the most populous. Right. And they're doing a lot of the, a yeah. lot of the fighting. No, and I think, you know, it's important to keep in mind that there is that really strong national security element that's there um, and concern about kind of the loyalties of these uh, different, you know, people that are coming from areas that are less wealthy, maybe feel a bit less lo loyalty to the state and where they have um, as well a tradition of, of uh, kind of activism, Islamic activism, and these sorts of things ties to the Muslim Brotherhood previously. So there is definitely a security element there. And so the desire to fill that space very much by bringing people back into this national fold, requiring it really. While women can enter national service in the United Arab Emirates on a voluntary basis, only about 850 did so in the first three years after conscription was instituted. 
Compare this to something like 50,000 men who underwent conscription in the same period. I asked Kristen what it means when the endeavor to build national identity separates roles for men and women or lacks accessible channels for women to fully participate. Well, I think, again, both the UAE and Qatar have, you know, really taken great strides in trying to give women prominent roles um, and to bring women uh, more into public life. So finding ways for them to contribute um, to the state and to society. I mean, they've done this through appointments. I think the UAE has nine ministers now that are women. Um, Qatar also has, has seen that in terms of women taking prominent positions, like once heading uh, Qatar University, playing a more public role. So I think there's kind of broader ways to do that just by trying to bring women into public life and showing you know, that they can contribute in these other ways outside of the home. Um, I think as your report kind of mentions, it's, it's probably more difficult to bring them in on this military side of national service. And there may be some kind of contradictory effects to, I mean, if you look at the UAE in particular, kind of embracing this role as the new little Sparta, taking a bit more of a military um, culture within society, I think that inevitably will have sort of effects that may, uh, like you said, lead women to be playing a separate role, if, if anything, and maybe even, you know, uh, emphasizing this kind of masculinity within the society that could at least be, you know, give a different kind of character to their, their national identity. I was struck when I was in the UAE last year around National Day. There were, there were a lot of uh, banners and, and shirts and clothing in the malls that, that often has a, a national connotation. Um, an unusual increase in the amount of military garb and, and camouflage and women's clothing that was camouflaged, women's yeah. dresses <laughs> in camouflage prints. Uh, I think showing and, and girls' dresses uh, in camouflage prints. I think showing uh, support often for men, but it seems to reinforce a gender separation rather than allied a gender separation, which is the way much of the world has been moving. Yeah, and we may see it going more in that direction as we see the UAE wanting to play a more assertive role regionally um, and intervening in a lot of different you know conflicts across the region. Uh, showing ambitions to play a stronger role, you know, across kind of the southern part of Arabia and to Yemen and the uh, Red Sea and even into East and North Africa. So I think uh, if their ambition is to kind of have more of a say in the way that uh, kind of uh, this whole Middle East, North Africa region is is created and the kind of uh, ideas that dominate in these areas, uh, then they're going to have to project their power uh, more, and we're going to see that reflected in, in citizens as well. And you can see that with things like uh, Martyr Day, where they're trying very much to use the fact that they're losing citizens in some of these conflicts to build that kind of support within the broader society. Next week on our third episode of Citizens in Training, we'll be hearing from Dr. Calvert Jones, who's pioneering research about how the UAE is molding a new kind of citizen for the age of globalization. But these endeavors come with a flip side. Callie talks about the unexpected rise of a phenomenon she's dubbed the entitled patriot. She has a lot to say about the Citizens in Training report and conscription program, and we can't wait to share that episode with you. You can read more about the UAE's conscription program in the full Citizens in Training report produced by the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, as we like to call ourselves. 
You can find it along with a two-page executive summary at www.csis.org UAE conscription. If this is your first time listening to this series, don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Share it with your friends and colleagues and let them know about this mini-series too. Let us know what you think by tweeting us at CSIS Mideast.